Welcome to the world of consciousness, human development, and full potential. Here we have conversations with people from all over the world about the subjects that matter for our mind, body, and soul, so that you can create a truly spectacular life. It is all about weaving the sacred, the soulful, and the ordinary into our everyday existence. Inhale, exhale, and let's begin. This is Timeless Teachings, a global podcast with Jana Frey. Let me tell you about our guest today, Frederick Travis. And I would like to go into more details about the background of this incredible man who truly studied the states of consciousness. Dr. Travis is a director of the Center for Brain, Consciousness and Cognition at the Maharishi International Management University. His work has been focused on brain development from birth to adulthood. He has been studying effects of stress on brain functioning and effects of meditation on the brain during and after meditation practice. He also studied subjective and objective markers of higher states of consciousness, brain patterns of peak performance, and effects of other technologies from the Vedic tradition of India, such as yoga asana practice, listening to Vedic recitation, and effects of the built environment on an individual. Dr. Travis has published 84 papers and book chapters and has authored and co-authored four books. Isn't it remarkable? Let's welcome Fred. Fred, thank you so much for joining us today. It is such a pleasure to have you on Timeless Teachings. Thank you, Jana. It's great to be here. And what we usually do, we just drive right in. (laughs) So I would like to go with the first question, where I always ask guests to tell a little bit about themselves, a little bit about your own story, and how did you become the person you are today? Very interesting (laughs) question. I, I think the essence of who I am is to explore the outside world. Uh, When I was maybe eighth or ninth grade, I wonder if birds see in color. And so I had a parakeet and I arranged these doors of different colors and I put food behind some of them and put the parakeet in front of one door or the other door and come to find out they see color. But that's always been what has been pushing me is using the tools of science that is of taking an idea inside and just projecting it outside to see how well it fits. And when I went to get a graduate degree, I had an undergraduate in design and environmental analysis. I wanted to get a graduate degree in psychology. Most of the programs were quite limited. Uh, you looked at one thing, they were narrow in terms of their focus. There's one PhD at Maharshi International University, which was much broader. Uh, It looked at development, it looked at information processing, it looked at sociology, it looked at psychophysiology. So that's where I went for my PhD. I also went here because it's a school which 
uses meditation to explore inner subjectivity. So in class, you're looking at knowledge and facts and models and so on. But then part of each class, you close your eyes. The meditation that we learned here was transcendental meditation. It's a meditation for transcending. It allow you to go beyond concepts and thinking and doing and just experience that silence, which is underneath thought. So as part of my desire to want to understand the world, it was very intriguing to me of how the brain changes during these meditation experiences, experiences which are outside of normal waking. Our experiences outside of normal waking, you're seeing things, you're hearing things, you're interacting with the world. There's always activity. Uh, there's always some localized specific experience. In the process tr of transcending, things just settle down and you're awake, you're alert, you're quiet, you're full, but you don't have anything in mind. You're not thinking, you're not experiencing, you're not reflecting, it's just a state of being. So those two things together, that experience of inner being and the desire to know, have propelled me to the last 40 years to look at the brain, see how the brain changes during meditation states, uh, development across the lifespan, to look at the brain and world-class performers, uh, to just better understand how we, who we are and how we see the world. This is beautiful. Thank you very much for sharing. And of course, I'm coming then with the next question. When you were mentioning uh, different states, right, different states of consciousness, you were saying just about transcendental state and wake state. So could you please take us through all of them and just explain the difference between them? Yes, so states of consciousness, everyone listening to this podcast is in the waking state. And waking state hopefully, is Hopefully, unless they are going to sleep, but hopefully. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and in waking, there's objects that we're thinking about. It could be outside perception. It could be things, thoughts in the mind. It could be feelings. But also there's a sense of self. We're having that experience. And these two things, sense of self and content, are what characterize waking state. The opposite of that is sleep. In English, we say we sleep like a log. Um, Sweden is sleeping like a stone. The idea is the same. You're there, but there's no ongoing experience, no sense of self, no experience of the outside world. And then the third state is dreaming. Dreaming is actually part of the eight hours of sleep. And you oscillate between sleeping and dreaming many times throughout the night. And what sleeping is doing is it's removing sleep dirt. And what like sleep that. dirt is, <laughs> is when we're awake, the brain is active. It's using and reusing physical chemicals, biochemicals, neurotransmitters, protein molecules. And these just break down because they're being used and recycled and used and recycled. You make about seven grams of what's called sleep dirt throughout the night. Seven grams fills a teaspoon heaping. And most of this is just inert material, but some of it is neurotoxic, um, including those um, types of brain areas that are associated with Alzheimer's. Um, and what happens at night is this, the area around the, each neuron becomes a little bit bigger so that the fluids in the brain can wash over the brain. 
So that's why sleep is so important, right? That's why we keep saying it's so fundamental actually to be well rested. Is there a number of hours that is recommended for an adult or a child to be fully rested? If you wanted to average it, it's about eight hours for an adult and probably about 12 hours for a child and nine hours for a teenager. Mm. But within that, some people get along with less sleep. Some people need more sleep. The key thing that your listeners need to do is some weekend, just take away all of the other things they have to do, go to bed at a usual, at a, a reasonable time, maybe 9.30 or 10 or 10.30. See when you naturally wake up and do this two or three nights in a row and see how much sleep you need. And then reorganize your daily schedule so you can get that. Because as you're saying, Yana, sleep is critical without it. The brain, which is the interface between us and the world, is just not functioning as effectively. We don't think as clearly. We don't have the same creative insights. We're not as happy and so on. That's a great tip. So, yes, everyone, please do that. I'm going to be the first one to try. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And what happens during dreaming is it's dreaming is a time of reorganizing your day's activity. Um, one scientist has called it structured forgetting structured forgetting. And that is all the experiences you've had in the day, which haven't been very meaningful. Uh, they haven't had the requirement for you to attend to them in great detail. What happens is those connections wash away. So when you wake up in the morning, what's consolidated is, ex is the experiences you had that were most meaningful. So these are the three states of consciousness, which everyone is aware of waking, sleeping, and dreaming. Just before you go now to the first one, I have a question. Since okay. we're talking about the dreaming state, what about what people call lucid dreaming? Right? So what is then the difference that between the normal dreams? And what, what, what is lucid dreaming, actually? <laughs> lucid dreaming is being aware that you're dreaming while you're dreaming. Mm -hmm. So you're asleep, the dream begins. And then an agent, an ego, an experiencer becomes awake in the dream world. And you can change your dream. You can um, change the scene. If something is going in a negative way, you can stop that, make it positive, and so on. So that's a lucid dream. In terms of the brainwaves, during the lucid dream, the brainwaves look the same as during any other dream. Where it's different is the period before. And as the period before, there's brainwaves that look very similar to what we see when the mind is very settled and transcending during transcendental meditation practice. And to back up, this experience we have in meditation is a state which can be located between any state of consciousness. As you go from sleeping to dreaming, as you go from dreaming to waking, waking to sleeping, the waking state is settling down, the physiology is settling down, the experience is settling down, say of waking, before sleep actually comes up, there's a period of this inner wholeness, inner silence, and this junction point. And you may experience it, especially waking up. You wake up and you're there, you're awake, you're alert, but you're not aware of the covers. Uh, you're not, your mind isn't planning, your mind is not deciding what to do. And that's just the experience of alertness, of wakefulness there at that junction point. And artists, Scientists have talked about the great insights they have as they come out of sleep. 
or maybe as they're going into sleep. And the model that we have is it's the brain settling down to its ground state. And so back to lucid dreaming, that period, that experience and what we call the junction point between sleeping and dreaming is just a little longer. So now that experience is enriching you, it's enlivening you, it's enlivening mind and body. So when the dream comes, the dream is more awake to its own structure. So who is awake in lucid dreaming is not the waking you, it's to dream you, it's to dream ego. It's usually, it's very fragile, it's usually completely overtaken by the very vivid, strong, bizarre, changing images of dreaming. But having an extended period in this deep inner silence, the dream ego can be aware and active in the dream world. This is such a beautiful way of describing it. I mean, I definitely had experiences of lucid dreaming since I remember flying, walking through walls and being very clear. <laughs> but it said uh, how you can consciously almost feels like by will, by dream will, right? So change environment and, and then exactly what you're describing to when you're waking up in the morning, that there is a moment when you're not quite sure what you are, who you are, what is what is it? And so it takes a moment to land back, sort of. And so to people who are listening to us right now and curious about lucid dreaming, as Fred said, that it actually starts with meditation during the wakeful state, because that's what settles the mind and helps you then to achieve that state that you're able to go into lucid dreaming. Is it correct? Um. It could be. It's not a direct connection because um, uh, lucid dreaming is not a necessary experience to have as we're growing towards higher states. Mm. It can be there and uh, it's perfectly natural uh, to be there. And the fourth state of consciousness, right? We were actually kind of on our way to that. <laughs> yes. So what's the fourth state? So. Um, Let's just say we have waking in which there's sense of self and there's content. We have sleeping where there's no sense of self, no content. We have dreaming where there's vivid dream images and there's usually no sense of self. And what that leaves is a state in which there's a sense of self and no content. It's this was to be an integrated picture. And that's what transcendental consciousness is. It's that part of you when you're silent, when you're not thinking when you're not acting but it's still you're alive you're existing it's being it's wakefulness itself it's what happens when the whole mind completely settles down and what you experience is that part of you that's universal because there's no specificity in mind you're not limited in time and space the experience is being outside of time being outside of space you don't feel confined to your body or to your room or it's just Space has no meaning. And this can occur spontaneously. And we talked about waking up, you have a brief experience of that. This can occur in any time when the mind is rested and when the mind's not directed in a very strong way. Abraham Maslow, whole career, looked at these spontaneous experiences and he called them peak experiences. They were Outside, it was hard to explain. Explain The word is ineffable. Just the words did not capture a state in which there was no boundaries. There was no labels to put on it. It's transcendental. One feels whole and complete. And 
these experiences can occur at any time when the physiology is in the correct state. And with certain meditations, especially transcendental meditation, which is designed for transcending, you can begin to have that experience in quite a systematic way, morning and afternoon in your meditation practice. And then that experience begins to support your thinking, support your ongoing experience, support even your perception. You were mentioning the physiology. Is there anything besides meditation that is important to do to align physiology, physiology in such a way that it helps us transcending? Great question, Jana. Yes. We just talked about sleep. Mm-hmm. When you clean out sleep dirt, it makes you clearer and more awake during the day, but it also allows your meditation experiences to be deeper and clearer. The regular sleep. Physical exercise is important. The body has to be in good shape. Um, and then what it does, it allows the experiences to be clearer, more settled. It's the body's like the vehicle that takes us through life. And if the body is in tune, if the body is functioning well, we find that everything, we find our thinking, our clearing, we have physical energy during the day. Also, we find that the process of transcending is deeper. Food is important. Mm. If you have the wrong food, it's going to lead to indigestion or it's going to lead to just clouding of fine levels of, of experience. So, so those are some, and also your relationships, mm. because we ingest not only food, but we ingest our experiences. By that, I mean that the experiences are actually translated into chemicals in the physiology. And these are chemicals of happiness, chemicals of anxiety, uh, chemicals of well-being. And so our relationships are very important in how we use our mind. Do we use our mind to explore more expanded ideas, use our mind to explore those ideas that can help others? Now, all of this is supporting the experiences that we can have. Um, the quietest level of the mind. Well, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> and we looked at four states of consciousness, right? So you were talking about the awake state, the sleeping state, the dreaming state, and the transcendental state. And you mentioned that actually lucid dreaming is part of the sleeping state. It is not a required experience for people to go into the higher state, which I feel is important information to repeat because sometimes mind kind of goes, oh, I need to experience that. If I don't have it, something is wrong. I'm not progressing. So what he was saying, actually, some people get it, some not. So, you know, for our audience, if you experience, it's wonderful. If not, it does not mean that something is wrong with you. You might still be going into the higher state. And that's why my next question for you, let's talk about then the state of consciousness and particularly the higher state of consciousness. And then what actually happens to a human being in those states. <laughs> and why do we even want to go there? That's maybe the big question. <laughs> the higher states of consciousness are just the continuation of growth that we started when we were first born. Um, they're part of what the physiology is designed to do. And they're higher, uh, just that the physiology is functioning different. Sense of self is fun, fundamentally more expanded. And also the self-object relationship changes. 
But let's just take this through. So we're born. When we're born, our brain is unassembled. That is, we have most of the neurons, the brain cells, we have throughout our life, but they're not connected. The child, when they're born and they look up with their non-blinking eyes, they do not see objects. It's like a burst of light, burst of sounds. They don't feel touch. They don't know where their body ends and the world begins. So the first thing that you do as a child over the first six months of age is you wire up the sensory system so you can see the object as a concrete object that maintains its shape as it moves through space. And then hearing can become more connected, usually by about age two. You can parse out this series of sounds, which is continuous, and actually divide it into words. And you know the words have syllables, but you put those syllables together, even though it's a continuous sound. This is what the brain learns to do just by bringing information in. So they're born. The first thing that happens is the outside world is created and you lose yourself in the outside world. There's no awareness of me experiencing mother or father or sister. It's just you're completely lost in that experience. Mm. And then as we continue to grow, we, be, we de-embed from that experience where we identify with the world around us and we reintegrate at a deeper level. And that deeper level is where we can reflect on outside objects. Suddenly there's a self inside there's the objective world outside, and we can think about how the outside world is moving. And we continue to grow, and this is teenage years, and we can reflect on our thoughts. We can actually, we don't need the objects there for us to think about. A 10-year-old can reason and rules and classify objects around them if they can see them. Someone who's a teenager, what they can actually do is have the idea in their head and begin to reflect on it. Now, the next stage is to actually transcend the words and the concepts, because you can get stuck in those. You can have great arguments over definitions and, and slight semantics and models, and there's just arguments over words. It's not real. And you can get stuck there unless you have a way to systematically transcend the thought to just settle into silence. And this is transcendental consciousness. This is how transcendental meditation is useful for the daily routine. So what's the next step? The next step is to bring that deep silence of the self, the deep inner evenness, the unshakable experience of who you are into activity. So now you see the world as before, you hear the world as before, you interact with people as before, but it's not as before. Because now this full inner state of inner being of wholeness is there at the same time. You have as if a silent backdrop, which is there that everything is falling upon. And because it's different than you, the world's constantly changing, you're not changing. The world is active, you're silent. It's these two streams that go parallel. And this is the first stabilized state of enlightenment. It's, um, in the transcendental meditation um, model, it's called cosmic consciousness. Cosmic just meaning that you have inner unbounded silence at the same time with outer changing world. And because it's a felt experience, it's a lived experience, the brain functions in a specific way. And it's very 
simple. You simply have the brain waves associated with inner transcendental consciousness and the brain waves associated with sleep. Inner transcendental consciousness, it's a brain wave between eight and 10 cycles per second. Sleep, you're getting rid of sleep dirt, it's one cycle per second. And what you see are both of these at the same time. You see the brain wave rising up and down, but at the same time, you see something on top of it. And this is coexistence of brain waves, which supports that coexistence of those two inner experiences. So that's the first higher state of consciousness. I'll pause there and let you ask a question. Yes, I, you're kind of, I, I was just like so into it, you know, listening to what you are sharing. Um, does that make, my first question, yes, of course. <laughs> when you're describing a person to be um, more silent within, when the world is so active, would that make that person less engaged in the reality? Great question. Thank you. Thank you, Yana. Because in, in some um, understanding, they talk about you becoming detached. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so does it mean that you're no longer feeling other people's pain? You're not sensitive to what's going around? What is actually happening is just the opposite. By analogy, it's like having a very turbulent, wavy body of water or a very silent, quiet body of water. And when the water is full of waves, it does not give a full expression of what's around it. When the water is completely silent, it gives a very well detailed and accurate and full picture of everything around it. So you feel the world in a way that you haven't felt it before. You feel completely as it is. In waking state, you're tending to project your needs and your desires on other people and other things. So you're not seeing the world as it is. You're seeing it colored by your deficiencies and your needs and, and so on. And what happens in cosmic consciousness, when you're silent, you can appreciate the world as it is. You can appreciate it in its fullness. And you can appreciate the degree of pain. You can appreciate, appreciate where people are going and growing. And so you can actually respond in a better way. Maharshi Mahesh Yogi brought out transcendental meditation. We tell a story if someone is crying in the street and you become overcome with grief and you start crying as well. Now there's two people crying. And then a third person, three people crying. But what's needed is to comfort the person and then do something to help them. And this is what happens looking at, for instance, how the body responds to stress. As we're growing towards cosmic consciousness, this is what the research shows. The alerting mechanism of the body, the sympathetic nervous system, starts to fire sooner when a situation, a problematic situation is coming. This research was done with movies of people working with heavy machinery. And you could see it looks like there's going to be an accident here. And those people with greater inner silence, their body began to register. They became alert to it. It responded immediately when the actual accident happened. But then, and this is key, it came down to rest again. Mm. That is, it didn't take that experience and continue to resound and reverberate and to, and to uh, color what was happening afterwards. 
And so it really allowed you to see, to experience the situation, but then to do something to help it. Beautiful. And then still come back to the inner silence after the action is completed. Exactly. And uh, I love how also you share that, I guess we talk also about empathy, right? an enhanced empathy. That's when you were describing when we're feeling other people or crying with those who are crying, laughing with those who are laughing. And I just love also now looking at your background when you have this the world, the peace in the world just behind you. And um, it feels from the description that just when we have a critical number of people around the world reaching even just that state, if we all just collectively reach the cosmic consciousness, then we're going to solve so many problems. And there will be just, it would be very hard for people then to kind of go against each other, how it has been happening now globally. So it feels like this is like a very first fundamental state that really can then help humanity to anchor more in, in compassion and understanding and kindness, which is, which is, which is very, um, it's very inspirational. <laughs> <laughs> this is so true, Yana. And also, there's another factor here, and that is we're not isolated people. Um, we're actually part of a larger system. And that larger system is that field of, that quiet field of silence that we experience in our meditation. That's common for everyone, because that's the field of alertness, of creativity, of desire to grow that compels everyone on earth to wake up and everyone on earth to think, what can I do today? And it's what can I do today to grow, to help others? And what's found is when many people are just practicing transcendental meditation, that common underlying field is more functionally significant. And what that means is everyone becomes a little bit more alert, a little bit more awake, a little bit freer of the boundaries of their own individual situation. And this has been measured in terms of groups of people practicing transcendental meditation and crime rate in cities, crime rate in countries. And a great paper by Guy Hatchard, he looked in England and there was um, Merseyside, just it's north of London, was the murder capital of England. And about 40 miles from Merseyside, there was a group that was beginning to people practicing transcendental meditation, the advanced programs, they decide, well, let's get together, let's live together, because uh, we want to be with other people with like mind. And so they came to that space in Skelmsdale, and they started practicing their program in groups. And what happened is Merseyside stopped being the murder capital of, the, of England. And it ended up actually being uh, rewarded for their ability to deal with problems and so on. So Guy Hatchard went to see, okay, what changed? And on the surface, everything was the same. There was schools and there was business and there was uh, art and there was music and there was government. But what he found is people were beginning to work together. They began to see that, again, they're not isolated individual people colliding on the pool table of life, but they're part of the larger system and they could understand the other person's point of view and they could begin to work out their differences. And it's just that 40, in 47 different areas, he was able to mark just greater cooperation. And this is the reality that we have the tools to actually change 
strife. We have the tools to change what's happening in Ukraine, in Russia. And that's actually occurring. Groups are assembling and doing their program together in the surrounding countries to try to change that knot of stress which is there, to try to change where the people's attention are, so they will realize that it, it doesn't profit anyone to destroy infrastructure and destroy other people's lives. And also when we talk about uh, individual practitioners, right? So, I mean, one thing when we come together in the group, but then also we talk about people who are just practicing for themselves, but I hear often that it could be maybe only one or two people in the family, let's say in a big family, who are actually meditating and they often get concerned about everyone else in the family. Like parents maybe don't do this, or maybe spouse does not do it, or maybe your children don't do it for whatever reason, right? But then you're the only one who feels like you are on the path and you're holding the space and you're doing your practice. And what I see that often people sometimes almost forcefully try to convince other family members to join. And <laughs> I feel also what you have been sharing, what I have seen in general in life, that sometimes it's just enough for one or two people in the family to be very strong in their own practice and just be very committed to this. And then over time, the consciousness of everyone in the family starts to settle and to transcend just because one of the people meditating on the regular basis. I mean, I definitely have been seeing it in my family. And so it's just also an encouragement for people who just meditate, please keep doing it, regardless of whether your immediate family is there or not. <laughs> excellent, excellent point. Yeah, it's so important, especially with family members. Um, if you're enjoying whatever you're enjoying, it's important not to push them, push whatever you're doing on others. Because they'll watch you. I mean, that happened. I started Transcendental Meditation. I went off to become a teacher. I came home and my sister had learned to meditate. And she just saw differences in me, as, as you were just saying. And those differences are what are real. That's what people can really appreciate. And also the fine feeling level, just being around you. You suddenly want to be around the person where before it was hard and it was a strain and you really felt uh, confused or even uh, pressed upon by the other person. And when that disappears, it's a very real experience. Yes, which brings us then to the next higher state of consciousness. What is happening after the cosmic consciousness? Where do we go? Excellent. So let's think, where, where can we go from here? The self, you what you know yourself to be, you're outside of time and space, you're full, you're silent. What can happen now is that a value of fullness, of silence, of harmony begins to move into the environment, begins to move into what you see. And you begin to see things less in terms of differences and more in terms of similarities, of harmony. You begin to walk outside and you see you don't have a tree. And then you, and grass and animals and the sun, but rather they're part of a larger system. And that's how you begin to appreciate it. You're less drawn to what's different in the environment. You begin to be drawn what's harmonious, what's whole. And this is called a, it's a finer level of perception. It's finer in that it's not dominated by difference, but it's dominated by what is common, what is whole, what is harmonious. And you begin to appreciate the creator who has put this all together. 
it's just the, the intelligence and the huge grasp of ability to take individual parts and to balance them and to put them into a whole. And this is called God consciousness. And it's not consciousness of God, but it's consciousness of God's creation. You begin to appreciate that what is around you is a whole express level. And it's still different from you, but it's a little bit closer. Now it's not constantly changing objects, but now it's just that wholeness, that integrated value of harmony. It's sometimes called celestial perception. It's just, it's very harmonious. And it's tied to the heart becoming fuller and happier. And you're more uh, in love with the world around you, not in a physical sort of way, but in a deep appreciation of everything around you. Which brings me to the next question, of course. <laughs> so thank you for pausing. <laughs> when we talk about the heart opening, right? So when you're describing it, it feels to me it's exactly that. So, and this has been in all ancient modalities and mystical schools and the, the big part of the higher states of consciousness, the journey and the transcendence is when there is the heart opening. And so when you're talking about this feeling of love, I think it's also important to clarify it's not being in love with someone in particular, right? So it's not falling in love, let's say, with the person or a particular tree or a particular animal. So it's actually an overall feeling in love. I feel that what they describe as when you become love, when you start radiating, when you start illuminating love, would that be around the celestial consciousness? Yes, love unites. And love sees, knows no differences. That is, the differences are there, but what's important is the underlying harmony. And this begins to happen, as you say, not directed towards a specific object. Could be a person, it could be a pet, it could be a hobby. Um, but it's more how you perceive the whole world around you. In terms of the heart, it's a very interesting question. And um, I don't think it's the physical structure of the heart, you know, the pump that moves the blood. But I think it is this part of of the physiology. And the model we have of how this field of consciousness, which is a field, touches a physiology, which is localized in time and space. Now, how's that possible? That's what Descartes was wrestling with. How does a mind interact with the body? But our understanding, it interacts in the spaces between. This field of consciousness touches the spaces between all the parts of the physiology. Um, one of the spaces is called the synapse. So that's where the output from one neuron stops. There's a space. Neurotransmitter goes to the other side, hits a receptor site, starts another action potential. That space is called the synapse. And science knows that that synapse is a quantum mechanical structure. That is, it's a probability. Once one action potential ends, there's a 40 to 60% probability it will actually move to the other side and start another action potential. It's a probabilistic structure. It's not like a physical switch, a zero, one, on off switch. If it's probabilistic, if it's probability, and then it's quantum mechanical. And I think that's where this field of consciousness touches the physiology. Mm. So all of the spaces in the physiology, and there's a lot of space here with the lungs, with the heart, and so on. And so I think our experience, because it is a direct experience, it's not intellective, that is, it's not words, and it's not rational. 
it's a deep feeling. It's a real life feeling, which is there. And I think that's what we're doing. We're beginning to feel our connection with that universal part of who we are. And what about then the brain waves, right? We were discussing in uh, cosmic consciousness, you were saying that it's almost like a two simultaneous brain waves are happening at the same time when we have this wakeful state, which we always have, like when we awake. But then at the same time, there is this wave, which is almost during the deep sleep when we're clearing the, the sleep dirt. It's also happening at the same time, right? So that's kind of like you could see that the person is in a cosmic consciousness state from a scientific point of view. So, and then when we talk about the God or celestial consciousness, so what's going on in our brain? That's the $64,000 question. I know. <laughs> Am I being tough? <laughs> Very tough. And we're actually working on that now. We have 79 people. We've talked to them about their experiences. Experiences in a very intense activity, experiences in sleep, their sense of self. And from the description of their experiences, we're putting them in an order. From people having least expanded experience to those having most expanded experiences. And from this, we hope to answer that question, what changes? And when the perception is beginning to be refined, where in the brain? I don't think it's the back part of the brain, that's the visual sense. So that's where actually the object from the outside comes into the brain. I don't think that's where this is happening. I think it's more in how the visual perception is being integrated with other modules in the brain. So we'll have to see one uh, angle we're looking at is called cross-frequency coherence. And we talked about coherence and we talked about, um, we haven't talked about coherence yet, but what we did yeah, see- Actually, yeah, let's talk about coherence. It's important Yes, what is coherence? Yes. People don't understand. Yes, yeah, so um, what scientists can do is measure two different parts of the scalp, the electrical activity, and they can measure how similar the electrical wave is because the electrical wave is going up and down. So what is the frequency, how sustained it is, and so on. And when two parts of the brain, the electrical activity is very similar, they're said to be coherent. Um, if any of your listeners know statistics, it's like correlation. It's actually correlating the rising and the falling, and is it stable over time? And what this is found to be associated with is higher coherence is associated with mental activity being more orderly, more precise, more focused, uh, broader range of awareness, higher level of more reasoning and so on. And what we find in this experience of transcendental consciousness is this eight to 10 cycle per second wave, but it's also highly coherent, specifically in the front of the brain. The front of the brain is the executive processor, that's where it puts, that's a symbolic part of the brain. It puts everything we're doing into the larger space. So what we're looking at is coherence over the surface of the brain. And that's tying together different modules, different processing circuits together. What I think is happening in God consciousness and also the final state we'll be talking about is within each part of the brain, all of the frequency bands are more connected, are more coherent as if past the baseline at the same time and you get a 10 cycle per second wave, which is going up once every 10, uh, 10 times a second, you get a 20 cycle per second wave and they cross the baseline at the same time. And as a one cycle per second wave goes, goes up, the two cycle per second wave goes up twice. Uh, the 
40 hertz, which has to do with focus, goes up four times and, and so on. So that's one measure which I think we'll be getting at and will capture what is changing in inner experience. Because it's not as though we see, like with a microscope, or we, it's not as though the vision is changed, it's the appreciation of the vision. It's the appreciation of the wholeness you know, which is there. So I think that's what will be changing and that's what we're working on right now. I'm so excited, you know, to witness when you get a little bit more information. So once you actually see it and figure it out, <laughs> so please let us know that we will record another will. interview because I think everyone would love to hear exactly what is actually happening. But yes, yeah, so all the best with sort of fine-tuning it and crystallizing what is being investigated right now. So then, then let's move to the next state of consciousness, right? So we look at the cosmic consciousness. We look at the what is called celestial God consciousness. So where do we go from there? From there, what happens is that wholeness, which is beginning to move out and is now seen to be organizing all of life, we begin to see that value, that fundamental value of life on the surface. It's as though. Um, the analogy that Maharshi Mahesh Yogi uses is sap. And the sap is expressed as the red petal and the green leaf and the hardness of the stem and so on. And unity consciousness, you begin to appreciate that all of these are expressions of the sap. And it's a direct experience. You've actually penetrated the boundaries and beginning to see that wholeness, that energy, which is rising up in those boundaries. And you appreciate that as your own deep inner silence. And so suddenly everything that you see is as dear to you as yourself. And everything that you see is as a part of who you are. Now, again, this who you are is not this physical frame of a certain age and nationality and so on. But who you are is an unbounded field of wakefulness, of awareness. We call it pure consciousness. Pure not being a value term, but meaning just consciousness itself. And begin to appreciate that everything is just a fluctuation of that value. And then the world is my family. The world is as dear to you as you are to yourself because that's your direct experience. And you see people thinking and acting. And you see it's all part of the larger play of what's going on outside of you. Yes, I'm listening. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> That just sounds like uh, like a dream world for the humanity. It would be wonderful. Um, would be actually not. I mean, it's not just wonderful. I have a very strong feeling that maybe the next generation, or maybe the following generation after that, but inevitably, that humanity will be reaching the high state of consciousness. And if we're lucky to be reincarnated, so I believe in reincarnation. For those who are listening, you might, you might not. It's a choice. I do. So it would be interesting if we will be able then to reincarnate once again when the world is actually at collectively at this level. And I'm just very curious to see how the life is going to be. So that's from my perspective. <laughs> what kind of world we're actually going to have. <laughs> yes. And it's the world that we're creating. Uh, because every action we do is affecting others, is affecting the larger collective understanding of who we are, of how we can improve the world. And as people become less caught up in their own individual things and ego and their own money, begin to realize that, no, we're part of a larger system. And my action is successful only when the larger system is growing and successful. 
And I think this is a transformation that's actually happening now. Mm -hmm. Already, uh, people are beginning to realize this. Some of it is, I think, due to what physics has done. They've looked deep at matter, and they found underneath matter is silence. Underneath matter is self-interacting fields. And they have different models, M-space and superstring and so on, and that's being discussed, but this is the framework. And at the same time, meditation experiences allowing people to realize, yeah, there's something more to me than thinking and feeling and doing. And I think all of these are coming together. Also, the technologies that we have. Right now, we're speaking, but we're thousands of miles apart. And right now, our, t our children are talking to people in Africa and Asia and United States and South America, the boundaries that used to be so important between countries are beginning to fade away. And people are beginning to realize that everyone are people, everyone are people trying to grow, trying to expand, trying to do their best. And I think all of this is coming together where there's an acceleration that will begin to make decisions more in terms of the whole and less in terms of the parts. Absolutely. I can also see it more and more around in all kinds of, you know, groups of people all around the world. And I feel especially also what was happening in the last three years since 2020, for better or for worse. But actually, it brought people more together collectively and globally. And it almost feels like we have been living now through a very accelerated process, like on a larger scale, because before it was a smaller groups here and there who were trying to do this and come together. Now it's like many more people realizing it. And so who knows? Now listening to you and reflecting, I'm like, maybe it is still in our lifetime that it's possible to see that the, the larger collective it is actually to go in those higher state and then what can we create? So this is really exciting. It Wait. definitely is. And what you're doing with these podcasts are making that happen. You're stirring people. Unless people are challenged, they don't change. Unless people are given a new model, they stick with their own model. So it's so important what you're doing, Yana. Oh, and thank you for that. I'm just trying my best to contribute to the whole, to the collective, right? We all do what we can to the best of our abilities. So thank you for that. Yes. And uh, that also then brings us to so-called, I guess, the final fully realized highest state of consciousness, right? So it's, I feel it's very right. important we also talk about that. What is that? Yeah, that's ripened unity consciousness. It's given a different name, Brahman. Um, and that's fully developed unity consciousness, where you're seeing not only what is immediately in front of you in terms of the self, but on the periphery and on the secondary and the and the other layers of perception. And you begin to appreciate everything in life is just self-interacting, interacting wholeness, which is yourself. And that grows over time. It grows with experience. And also it grows with the intellectual understanding of your experience. Because it's a completely different experience and it can be quite um, destabilizing if you don't understand what's going on. So in the Vedic literature, there's a whole book. It's called the Brahma Sutras. Brahman is that experience of wholeness. The sutras are individual sayings. And what they help to do is give expression to your experience. So you can appreciate what is going on. Why, what is the meaning of the experience you're having and so on. And that's also then the states that all most authentic enlightened masters are of, 
right? So when, again, for the audience, people who are listening to us, of course, if um, that's actually the whole other conversation <laughs> for another probably podcast, because there is this also movement. Some people go, yes, let's have a teacher. It is important. Other people go, no, we don't need the teacher. We can figure it out ourselves. <laughs> so that's that's also a big question right now. I personally still feel the teacher is very important for all kinds of reasons. And um, one of them, which I feel the most important one, is exactly what you just mentioned when we talk about the Brahman consciousness. So when you are actually even in the presence or connected to a master who is at that state when the unity consciousness is fully integrated, then it's like it's, it's an incredible assistance to your own personal journey of transcendence. So if you are doing it by yourself, Hypothetically, you can still do that, but it's probably, but realistically, it's going to take just much longer, maybe not even one lifetime, maybe several lifetimes. And it's probably going to be hard because you're relying only on your own resources, but you accumulate it. So when you do this actually under the guidance of the master who is truly realized, who is truly in Brahman consciousness, or you're connected to the teaching, it is just much faster to get there, less resources from you. And uh, also you're kind of saving yourself all sorts of mistakes that people often do. So you're not going to be lost, but you're actually going to arrive in this destination if we could use them in these words when we talk about it. So sort of in a more graceful way, that's at least in my understanding and my experience. Very clearly spoken out. And there's another point, the knowledge makes the experience more profound. As you begin to transcend and that inner silence becomes part of your life, it, you may not notice it because you're just feeling more stable, more even, you're able to do things better than before. The intellectual understanding allows you to appreciate what is happening, what is changing in your life. And then you can begin to note these transformations. Also what it does, it allows you to appreciate what you're doing. So why would you want to sit for 20 minutes and just let the mind be easy? Just to allow the mind to be silent and whole. You know, it, it means that you're thinking 40 minutes less, you're planning 40 minutes less, you're, you're taking care of problems 40 minutes less. But once you understand that this is allowing the mind to go to that part of you that's whole, that's complete, that's the source of your creativity and intelligence. Once you have an intellectual understanding, you say, yes, this is valuable. In the same way with growing higher states of consciousness, they can happen, they will happen, because the brain is a river and not a rock. And moving the brain back and forth between the transcendent and activity, <laughs> the brain begins to put them together in a very natural way. And the intellectual understanding, by seeing that, will help to support it and facilitate it and to prize this growing inner silence and appreciate what's going on. You're going to be finding there's fewer thoughts in your mind. Your mind just isn't always racing and spinning its wheels. That there's thoughts, thoughts are more purposeful. You pick them up. Um, you don't sit and ponder for long periods of time, but you think and one thought comes up and it seems good and you take it and go. So the intellectual understanding is so key. And for those that are interested, we have many online programs at Maharshi International University, indeed a master's in consciousness and human potential. So because we have this connectivity through the internet, we have these 
podcasts that are going on, but also if you're interested in deeper knowledge, do look that up. Absolutely. And we will also add all the links in the description. So it's easier to find you and to connect. So we do all of that. Thank you. And also at the very beginning, you did mention uh, that you have been studying brains of the high performing people. Right. So are we talking about athletes or like high performing athletes? What kind of people and what happens to their brains? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent question, Yana. Um, after our research with people, experiencing higher states, we ask the question, where else do we see that brain pattern? And we call it brain integration. That's the integration of the brain waves of the transcendent with those during waking and the transcendent with those during sleep. And we reasoned we should see it in highly successful people. Highly successful people, they're working under stress, they're coming up with creative ideas, they're able to have a vision and continue with that vision. And so we looked at athletes, Olympic athletes, national games, world games, compared them to athletes who did not consistently perform at that level. And we found higher levels of brain integration. So this integrated style of functioning that we saw growing through meditation practice in these world-class athletes. Now, these people were not meditating. It's not a meditation study. It's success in the world study. And then we looked at managers, top-level managers for those who have been CEOs for 18 years or longer. Their company had grown during that time. Again, higher levels of brain integration compared to the middle-level manager. And again, brain integration is that integration of deep inner silence is there. That brainwave of deep inner silence is there along with the ability to focus and to act. And we asked these managers, okay, what's your secret? none of them said, I'm smarter, or I worked harder. What they all said is they could rely on their inner intuition. They could rely on those hunches. I think this is a good practical description of what does it mean to have more access to your inner being, that fountainhead of creativity, intelligence within you. The last group were classical musicians, amateur and professional. And what we found is both of them had high levels of brain integration, similar to the world-class athletes and managers. I think that brings out the value of the aesthetics for refining brain function. And what is found is people who play music are engaged in the arts, so dance as well. As children, the brain is connected differently as an adult. Specifically, there's more integration between the left and the right sides of the brain. Now, by comparison, long-term TM practice results in about twice the magnitude of brain integration as a world-class. And I bring that up not to suggest that meditation is going to make you a great athlete, manager, and musician, but just that taking the mind to the transcendent is exercising the brain in a way that's seen in highly successful people. That, that is the ability to remain whole inside, but penetrate deep into whatever is the problem on the outside, to resist extraneous stimuli, uh, to be able to pick up the very quiet intuition in the midst of a turbulent environment. So, um, and actually we use that as a basis for a second book, World Class Brain. It actually asks, what is the brain of those highly successful people? I have a book. <laughs> Thank you for the gift. 
Yes, and thank you. thank you for describing all of that. It is very eloquent and it's very clear. And uh, we are moving to the final part for our conversation today after we covered everything, <laughs> which I still feel that it is just very important to talk about uh, because in the, especially the new age spirituality, people use this often in the hope um, to help them to get to high states of consciousness. And I just would like to understand your view on does it really help or not right so we're sort of not saying pro or against not advising anyone about anything we're just sharing information as it is and then people can make their own grown-up decisions about things so what we're going to be talking about uh what is called psychedelics and um, i know that it's also part of the research that you have done uh what actually happens then to the brain i know the reason why, especially in the new age spirituality, people use that because there is a belief that it helps you to go to those higher states of consciousness that you just described. And so now my question to you, is it really true? Um, the bottom line is no. But to, <laughs> to expand the understanding is what is happening is the quality of experience is changing. Um, and that it's it's becomes more expanded. You have deep insights into who you are, how you relate to the environment. I think that's a great attraction because people have been locked into boundaries of school and thinking and shoulds and coulds. And, and with the psychedelics, they have a different type of experience. But it is completely different from meditation experience. All psychedelics lead to decreased blood flow to the brain. And what happens is that the different modules in the brain um, cease to have their distinction. And that is what's leading to the um, psychedelic experience. In contrast, when we transcend, we see decreased blood flow in the parts of the brain that have to rev us up. That is the brainstem, which is involved in breath rate and heart rate and muscle tone and so on. That's lower. And that's why we feel very quiet and rested in meditation but there's increased blood flow to the front part of the brain. Front part of the brain, it's the, uh, the boss of the brain. It actually gets information from all other parts of the brain and puts it together and sends it out. So the blood flow patterns are fundamentally different. Also the raw EEG is fundamentally different. All psychedelic drugs and psychedelic experiences are associated with very fast brain waves called gamma. It goes up and down. 30 or 50 times per second. And gamma is a brainwave whenever you're having an intense experience. And psychedelics are leading to very intense experiences. You're very much lost in that experience, is caught up in the experience. And what we see in transcending is not gamma. What we see is alpha activity. It's eight to 10 cycles per second. And that's the cycle of the brain just humming to itself. That's the cycle of attention, awareness, just being awake, but non-directed, aware, but non-directed, settled into your own being. So we see where the brain patterns are fundamentally different. The effect of the experiences of the psychedelics, I think is to wake the person up that there's something more. There's something more than just eight to 10, uh, or excuse me, uh, eight to five hours, you know, you're working and and you want to get a house and you want to get a garage and you want a house on the beach that the material things aren't what is really important. There's something more important. But to actually have that as a stable experience, you have to move the brain to the actual experience of the transcendent. 
which has a completely different blood flow pattern, EEG pattern, and back into waking. And then the brain begins to put these together and these psychedelic experiences, which are very almost forceful on the physiology, these can be part of your living reality, but it's only by moving the brain back and forth in a systematic way. And since we are talking about it, let's just discuss like a three major ones, right? So let's talk about LSD, MDMA or, or DMT, sorry, LSD, DMT, and maybe the mushrooms, right? So just very briefly, maybe what actually happens uh, when, when a person takes one of those besides the hallucinogenic effect? What happens physiologically, um, mushrooms and DMT act the same way. That is the chemical, active chemical in mushrooms, the active chemical um, of DMT looks like serotonin. And you ingest it, it goes into the blood, the blood goes up to the brain. As a brain, as a blood passes through the brain, it's actually pushed, some of the plasma is pushed into the core of the brain called the ventricle system. And this fluid is what um, serves to buoy the brain to keep it um, floating. It also percolates through the brain to take away waste. So now what's per percolating through the brain has high number of chemicals that look like serotonin. So whenever there's a serotonin receptor, it sits inside of it. So what it's doing is producing elevated serotonin connections in the brain. The serotonin, it's a modulator of experience. It makes thoughts more um, seemingly more important. It makes feelings more full and so on. Uh, what LSD does, it also works on the serotonin system, but it does it differently. And that is it stops the reuptake of serotonin. So neuron fires, neurotransmitter, serotonin goes into the space between the synapse, floats to the dendrite where it's absorbed, and there has some effect. And then it releases the serotonin and it's the reuptake of it, it's usually recycled, that reuptake is blocked. So the serotonin is just sitting in the receptor. And then again, it settles into the, the receiving cell and then it lets go and settles in again. So the effect is having elevated serotonin in the brain. And the one possible issue that this can do is if there's too much serotonin, elevated serotonin in the brain, the brain actually removes receptors. I don't need all these receptors. And many times after psychedelic experiences, a person crashes. And that is, they, they, their muted feelings, uh, sense of well being is muted. That's because the whole serotonin system has been really overworked in a very strong way. Mm -hmm. So basically, there are no shortcuts to the higher states of consciousness. <laughs> That's what we're finding out. And I assume with the things like marijuana or what was that, the amphetamines or cocaine, right? I guess it's just a different maybe physiological reaction, but it's a very similar um, underlying kind of message that it's not something that can help to uh, stabilize a higher state of consciousness. Rather than actually an opposite, what you're saying, it, it, it creates more volatility and there is more sort of instability. And what I heard from some other people actually at the Maharishi University saying also that um, when a person takes any sort of psychedelic or any sort of enhancement, whatever we call this, right, for the higher state, then after the visions and everything are gone, because we open so-called the third eye. And then that the third eye, if we use this language, shuts down 
after the experience is wearing off. And apparently it is much higher, much, much more difficult could be to develop it again and to open it again through meditation, actually, because it's like the door that is just being shut close. And then you kind of need to probably meditate a little bit more to open it again. So I'm not sure if it is like true or not, but that's what I heard from people who are, uh, have been meditating also for a long time. <laughs> yeah, it's very true. Every experience is changing the brain. When you have a very um, overwhelming experience, like a drug experience, it is leaving its trace in brain function. And so then you need to work with that. There's some work at John Hopkins on the effect of psychedelics for therapeutic uh, depression, PTSD, and so on. Uh, what I find is intriguing is first, the people do experience psychedelic experiences, so the cognitive content of their experience is different. It does change them because it's a huge uh, revelation. It's like um, you've been watching television with most of the TV covered with masking tape. You're just seeing a little part in the middle. And what the psychedelics are doing is they're turning up the perceptual mechanism. It's like turning up the color card. And you begin to see something underneath the masking tape. Suddenly you wake up, oh, there's something more to life. And this is what people say. About half of them say these experiences were very life-changing, but then they say they don't want to continue to use it because they realize it's not a step to have that in a stable way. Uh, it did have that effect to help them go the next step forward, uh, but it's not something, as you're saying so clearly, Yana, a way to actually stabilize it. Thank you very much for sharing all of that. And that was such a powerful and deep interview. You're just a fountain of knowledge, Fred, and I think we could have been talking with you for hours and hours, and yet I also understand that the attention spam of a modern person is only <laughs> so much. So, and I'm really stretching it today, and I just feel that you have so much to share, and I really wanted to give you opportunity to share all of it. So with, with my intention that people who are listening to it, they will find one way or another, because we talked about so many things today, that they will find what resonates with them and, and hopefully helps them on their journey into the highest state of consciousness, into the journey of the meditation. And of course, as I shared at the beginning that, or in the middle somewhere, that we will be including all the links and connections so you can connect with Fred and ask any questions. And also, if you want to learn more about programs at the Maharishi University, all these links will be provided in the description. So make sure you read actual description. And Fred, um, thank you so much for being here today. It was absolutely a phenomenal interview. Thank you, Yana. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for what you're doing. A gentle reminder that this is not a regular podcast, because here we have no rules and no scripted questions. All conversations are spontaneous, unfiltered, and real with people from all over the world, regardless of their race, religion, nationality, skin color, language, or social circumstances. The intention for this podcast is to showcase the infinite variety of how human beings think and what they do to create happiness, fulfillment, self-realization, health, wealth, legacy, and overall, a truly spectacular life. 
Did you enjoy the interview? Feel free to share this episode with friends, subscribe to the podcast and YouTube channel, and follow us on social media. And remember, you are the master of your own life.